Brown and Brooke as well. Uh, some tough pronunciations there. All right, keep that open, uh, one Samuel, up in front of you. That'll be very helpful to see where we're going and following along. You also find a, an outline in the bulletin as you um, came in, so that'll be helpful to have it open at the end. Uh, and if we get time, we should do, I think. Uh, we'll have a bit of time and question and answer at the end and see how that goes. So if you've got a question, scribble it down or a comment and then um, share it at the end. Uh, before I continue on, uh, I forgot to mention too, we have a borrowing service this afternoon at, at St David's at 4.30, so everyone's invited to come. Actually got a guest speaker this afternoon, which is exciting. We're speaking on Psalm, he's speaking on Psalm 126, so um, should be a good afternoon together. If you're free and would like to come along, that would be great. How about I pray for us and then uh, we'll continue on. Father, thank you for your word to us today. Uh, we thank you, God, that you're a, a good God who cares for us so much and you love us dearly. Lord, help us to respond to your word as we hear it. Uh, and Lord, help us to respond to it with obedience. And as Jesus says, put your words into practice in our lives. Amen. Well, and now for your viewing voyeuristic pleasure. We'll have that video, please. forklift driver. <laughs> no, no one was injured, I assure you, everyone was safe. Um, as we see that video, uh, ruin, ruin can come so suddenly. <laughs> ruin can come so suddenly. As you read 1 Samuel 13, I'm not sure whether you felt the same thing. Maybe that's the impression we get as we read 1 Samuel 13. The end of chapter 12, where we're not left with much optimism about kingship, but we've got some, haven't we? We do have some hope at the end of chapter 12. There are some positive expectations as we flip over the page into chapter 13. We read the customary formula of chapter 13, verse 1, introducing the king's reign. And we expect at least something decent to come from Saul's rule. We even read he's gathering troops to fight against the Philistines. He's defending Israel. He's doing what he ought to be doing. So we're a little unprepared for what happens in the chapter, as the chapter unfolds. The ruin seems so sudden. Well, first up then, there's a hint of trouble. Although verse 3, trouble is brewing, although verse 3 tells us there's every reason to cheer for Team Israel uh, when news spreads that Jonathan struck down the Philistines at Geba, 
which is sort of the same area you can see there as Gibeah, and that's important for later on. The two words or names are interchangeable. So Jonathan has struck down these Philistines at Gibeah. So good news, no trouble there at all, except I guess that the Philistines heard about it, and I don't think they were too thrilled. So Jonathan is the man behind this first success, and that piece of news is a little unsettling. So here's the trouble. We admire Jonathan's courage, don't we? But he's not Saul. He's not Saul. He's the king's son. He's not the king. Why didn't Saul take the initiative? Why didn't he go out before Israel? Now, of course, the press release gave Saul the credit for the victory. See that in verse 4? But everyone knew who authorised the press releases. It's unsettling because it stirs up a question in our minds. Does Jonathan's success point to something lacking in Saul? Well, the Philistines assemble. And in verse 5, their show of force is overwhelming. Look at it again. Uh, Shock and awe, as they say. And in verse 6, like brave, brave Sir Robin in the Monty Python movie, many Israelites bravely ran away. Uh, Saul was left at Gilgal with what troops remained. But what really mattered, what's the focus of this historical account that we read here in front of us, is actually what happens in verses 8 to 15. That's the dialogue between Saul and Samuel. The Philistines may have been strangling Israel, but that's nothing compared to the more crucial issue of royal disobedience. So what I want to do now, I want to read verses 8 to 15 again for you. And let's follow along. Verse 8. In fact, let's go halfway through verse 7, that start of that paragraph there. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings, our offering, and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Well, Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me and I have not sought the Lord's favour, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. There are about 600. You know, we can really... I guess, can we really fault Saul for his disobedience? Can we do that? You know, the punishment, we read in verses 13 to 14, his kingdom is in reference to his sons and sons and inheritance and, and so forth. His family, the, 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 his sons ruling on, the, on, the, on that throne. The punishment seems a little severe, don't you think? 
Saul really thought he had no other alternative. Nothing was left. Okay, he'd waited the seven days, as he was told to back in 10 verse 8. We'll get to that, back to that in a minute, uh, following Samuel's command. Or at least the seventh day. His army was disappearing fast, and, and he, for all he knew, the Philistines were just over the next hill. How could he be blamed or punished for acting as he did? Shouldn't, well, shouldn't he receive some sort of, I don't know, a bit of sympathy instead of punishment? Now, there's no question about the pressure Saul would have felt. It would have been immense. If you try to picture yourselves in his shoes. But it's highly unlikely that the Philistines would have attacked Gilgal by the Jordan River. One, it was where the prophet Samuel instructed Saul to meet him. And two, it's in the middle of nowhere, really. It's deep in Israelite territory. And so a logistical nightmare for any invading army. And so Saul, well Saul also tries to shift the blame. Did you catch that? Verse 11. And that you did not come at the set time. You were late, says. You were late. Now Saul's referring back to chapter 10, verse 8. His instructions from Samuel that he was to follow after dealing with the Philistine outpost at Gibeah. Or Geba. Let's go back and read 10, verse 8. If you've got a Bible there, have a look at it. 10, verse 8. Flat one page in my Bible. So Samuel says to Saul, after he dealt with that Philistine threat at Gibeah, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice, burn offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come and tell you what you are to do. Now Saul seems to have waited into the seventh day, but possibly not the whole day. I'm not really sure. So what's the issue? It's a bit picky, isn't it? Well, for one, it isn't about sacrifices. So it's not about who does the sacrifice. It was not uncommon for leaders who were not priests to sometimes lead a sacrificial ceremony. That happens. But Samuel's instructions were for Saul to wait for Samuel's arrival so that he could receive the prophet's instructions about the conduct of the battle to come. God would give him guidance through his prophet about the Philistine war. You see, what we've seen over the last five weeks is that Samuel was the bearer of the word of God. That's how God spoke to his people at that time. God spoke through prophets and the prophets then conveyed God's word to the people. And Saul's task was to hear it and Saul's task was to wait for it and to obey it. Now, by the way, today we don't need to wait for God's word. All we need to do is pick up our Bibles and read it. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We don't have to sit around waiting. God today speaks to us, as Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 tells us. Uh, he speaks to us through his son, by his spirit, in the word of God in our scriptures today. So that's great. You see, for Saul, here's, here's what it came down to at this moment. You see, for Saul, sacrificial ritual was essential, but prophetic direction dispensable. One commentator said during the week, I read it again. Sacrificial ritual was essential, but prophetic direction dispensable. And that's foolishness, says Samuel. You see, in Samuel's mind, certain emergencies rendered God's word unnecessary. When the chips were down, kingship could function on its own. 
Samuel says, you're a fool. Now I'm wondering if you're hearing the word of God this morning. What happens when the chips are down in your life? What happens when trouble strikes? Or you've got a big decision in front of you? Whatever it might be. How necessary is God's word at that moment in your life? Or are you being foolish and God's word is indispensable? See, kingship is prone to pride like this. I guess we're all a bit like that. Uh, it's sometimes subtle, sometimes not. The story goes of, um, of James the sixth. had to practice that. The sixth of Scotland. Um, uh, there he is on the right. James the sixth of Scotland, who was notoriously rude when attending church services. This would never happen, of course, at Robertson Anglium. Um, on one occasion, he was seated next to his buddies while Robert Bruce preached. And he's the guy on the left with the fancy moustache or goatee or whatever that thing is. Sticking to form, James began to talk with those around him during the sermon. Again, would never happen here, would it? Um, Bruce paused like a good teacher does. Is that long enough? Yeah. Um, and the king fell silent. The minister resumed. So did James. Bruce paused a second time. Same result. And when the king committed his third offence, Bruce turned and called out James directly from the pulpit. This is what he said. It is said to have been an expression of the wisest kings. When a lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel. It and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. Yeah. I'm thinking about trying that in my scripture class. <laughs> Might work. I remember that quote. Little, you know, year two kid, and it become no, no, I won't do that. Uh, <laughs> I, you see, Saul, Saul had forgotten that he is subject to the true king, a bit like James. The true king in his word through the prophet. In short, the charge against Saul was disobedience to God and his word. Let's think about foolishness then in the Bible just for a moment. You might remember the passage that Brooke read out to us in Psalm 14. Psalm 14 verse 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The trouble is, that's not what it looks like. And it's not what it feels like. Those who deny God in their thinking, speaking and living do not always or even usually seem to be fools. Now the words of the psalm, of course, are not a statement about the intellectual capacity of atheists. There's plenty of very clever atheists and the best arguments against the existence of God are not simply stupid. But here's my point. That is that Psalm 14 verse 1 does not say the fool says in his mind there is no God. It's the one who says this in his heart who is deemed a fool. And this is far more serious. Many may never say in their mind there is no God. But nevertheless, they say it in their heart. The issue is acknowledging God, not just in my understanding, 
in my consciousness, but in my consciousness, in my desires, in my anxieties, in my ups and downs, in my inmost thoughts, and therefore in my character and in the things I say and do. But again, there's a difficulty here, isn't there? Some of the least foolish looking people take no account of God at all. In fact, if we're honest, we would probably admit that it sometimes looks very foolish indeed to take God too seriously. And so when old Samuel calls Saul a fool, well, we feel a bit of sympathy for him, don't we? Doing what he did in the circumstances, I look pretty wise. So again, what was foolish about Saul's actions in these desperate circumstances? And we know that sometimes obeying God seems entirely foolish. It's a huge mistake to think that to obey God is an easy thing to do. Trusting God is neither straightforward nor simple. Especially when circumstances like in Saul's situation cry out to ignore God and stay safe and comfortable. Philistines coming in massive numbers, Israelites deserting and the rest terrified. Ignoring God, leaving God out of the decision, seems a lot smarter sometimes, doesn't it? It certainly seems a lot safer, a lot more comfortable. But Saul's foolishness, his disobedience, was not really about the circumstances, as we've said. In the circumstances, Saul's uh, actions seem pretty wise. In his mind, they made good sense. The foolishness was in his heart. The foolishness was to neglect God's word through the prophet Samuel. You see, foolishness is a heart thing because obedience is not just about the mind, it's about the heart. Acknowledging God not just in my understanding but in my consciousness, in my desires, in my anxieties, in my ups and downs, in my inmost thoughts and therefore in my character in the things I say and do. Trusting in God's word ought to come about irrespective of the circumstances. In fact, it's foolishness to act only with the present circumstances in view. What Saul neglected was God's word to him, God's promises to him. And that, God says, is foolishness. Well, the mood doesn't really improve at Gilgal. Have a look at verse 15. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Samuel had left. At that point, we actually should go, <gasps> that's what we should do. Thanks, Matt. Um, Samuel had left. The word of God had left. Saul was alone, alone in his distress. Saul had isolated himself from what he needed most. And so there's an air of hopelessness hovering over the scene. And as we continue with Samuel walking away, well, things are really going from bad to worse, aren't they? And we've all had those types of days, haven't we? Where things just go from bad to worse, a bit like a domino effect. You, you get out of bed and the first thing you tread on in bare feet is a piece of Lego. That's not a good start, is it? You know? And then there's no milk for the coffee. Oh, the humanity, the, the misery, the pain. You have to have it black. And perhaps you finish your day with going a bit hungry because, 
Well, it's Monday night and Tuesday is shopping day and we all know that nothing is open in the Highlands on Monday night. Source day is a little different, isn't it, though? And, and it isn't getting any better. See, adding to Saul walking away, well, the enemy is sending out raiding parties and successful raiding parties, just bit by bit, chopping down some Israelites. And they said that in verse 17 and 19. And with the Philistines monopolising the blacksmith industry, pretty smart move, don't you think? Taking out the blacksmith little factories and so forth, or whatever they call them back then. And basically keeping Israel effectively disarmed. It's not just hopelessness. What we have here is despair. What's going to happen now? Surely they'll be taken out. But of course, you see, this situation, the helplessness of Israel, it's nothing new to Israel, is it? And as we read our Bibles, well, it's nothing new to us when we understand the history of Israel. We've seen it before. The total helplessness. The total helplessness of God's people proves to be the backdrop to the Lord's rescue. Isn't that true? That's grace throughout the Bible. Well, let's wrap things up. And let's now grasp something that's difficult for us to see. You see, the really fearful situation for Saul and the Israelites was not the Philistines. It wasn't that. It wasn't the Philistines circling and taking out building an army, taking out Israelites. It wasn't that. That wasn't the most fearful thing. The fearful thing here was the Lord God who made it clear through his prophet that what he required of his people and their king was obedience. That was the fearful thing. And we find this hard to see because we are so like Saul. We find it hard to see because we're so like Saul. We sympathise with him. Didn't you before? I did. I sympathised with him. I thought it was a bit harsh. Samuel? We sympathise him with him because we too find that to obey God fully and trust God fully really is beyond us in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. King Saul could not help his people in this. He was a fool. Like the rest of us. It's therefore so important that we hear these words from Hebrews 5. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Friends, the obedient king has now come. This king is no fool. He's not like Saul and nor like us. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's do that now, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we pray that when times of distress come, Lord God, when times of challenge and decision come, we wouldn't push your word aside. But because we have King Jesus, our King, Lord, your anointed King, Lord, we can approach your throne of grace with great confidence and we can find mercy, we can find grace to help us in our time of need. 
Lord, thank you for your word today. Help us to put the words into practice. Help us to trust you and obey in all that we do. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we've got a few minutes. Any comments or questions? Words of encouragement? Anything like that? Thanks, Gary. Yep. Um, it continues all the way up until Henry the uh, Eighth disregards the Catholic Church. Yes. 